Michael Waits Media, telling Asia's stories. Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the Social Innovation Podcast. Today, I am joined by Sylvia Yu Friedman, an author, a smiling author, award-winning filmmaker, and serial entrepreneur. Sylvia, I cannot thank you enough for coming on and doing this. It's really great to have you on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. I've heard great things about your podcast and Matt really loves talking with you. He's been on the podcast twice. <laughs> it has been my complete pleasure. You know this better than I do, but Matt's work is very important. And the more exposure that I can give to it, the happier I am. I mean oh, that from the bottom so of my much. heart. Thank you so much. Yeah, he's really pioneered uh, anti-slavery in the corporate world, uh, in Asia and globally. So I'm really proud of him. And I write about the beginnings of that actually in my book, A Long Road to Justice. Yeah, I wanna talk about that in a second. You've been involved with media from very, very early on. Like 1997 feels like it was a really long time ago, doesn't it? And, and I wanna talk about your, I wanna talk about both of your books, but what I wanna ask you a little bit about is, you've also produced a lot of document documentaries, you said you've written three books and stuff like that. But how did you first get involved in media? And what's really interesting to me is, how do you think it's changed over time? You've been doing this for a long time. How does it look differently to you today when everything is digital, everything is almost frictionlessly distributed and global, whereas before media was very local? Is that fair? Well, I, I think the reach and the impact is much, much greater. And for me, I haven't had any hiccups or I, I haven't noticed uh, the rapid changes because I've always been a multimedia journalist. Even back in 1997, I was doing public radio and TV, magazines and newspapers. And uh, I'm a bit of a workaholic or rather recovering workaholic because <laughs> while I was writing my book, I took time out. And so, you know, I, I'm just gearing myself up, bracing myself for, you know, getting out, speaking again, doing interviews again, because it, it's a real drastic change for, for, from the last few years, you know, when I was, you know, in the cave writing my book. And I got into media by accident. I actually wanted to be a human rights lawyer. Uh, when I was 15, I heard about the comfort women. And that's a terrible euphemism uh, that the Japanese government and Japanese military used for girls as young as 11 and women all over Asia who were forced, tricked, deceived into wartime brothels, rape stations by the Japanese military sanctioned by the government before and during World War II. And so when my mother read about it in a newspaper when I was 15, she told me about it. I was shocked because I, I hadn't read about it in my Eurocentric textbooks. And I had actually seen and been so gutted by the testimony of a Holocaust survivor when I was around 15. It shook me to my core. Uh, because I had terrible experiences with racism. You know, I was the only Asian kid in an all-white neighborhood. I want to talk about this now, right? Because I think it's actually really important. So where are you from originally? Where were you born? I was born in Korea. You in were? Busan, in in Busan. Busan. Yeah, but my parents are not from Busan. They're from neighboring areas, but 
They ended up working in Busan and then they immigrated to Canada, to Vancouver, Canada, when I was two years old. And uh, interestingly, my father, he speaks fluent Japanese. Of course. And he had the choice. It was like a sliding doors, fork in the road type of thing. He had a choice of moving to Tokyo and working for a company there or moving to Canada. And man, had I had I moved and grown up in Tokyo, I, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today. You don't think so? You understand that, right? <laughs> well, yeah, I do and I don't. I mean, because Koreans to have a really interesting role in Japanese life, right? And I think part of it has to do with, there's a long running history between Japan and Korea because those countries, first of all, people don't understand literally how physically close they are. Geographically, they're not that far away. You could literally take an overnight boat that's not a fast boat and get to Korea in probably eight to 12 hours. I forget what it was, but we thought about doing it. It's super close, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. And as you know, because you've lived in Japan, Japan colonized Korea since 1910 until the end of World War II. And that history is very much runs in my veins. It, it's, it's generational pain. It's generational racial hatred of the Japanese for the human rights violations, atrocities. And um, my family were actually part of the collaborators and because they were in positions of authority and they had to work, they were forced to work with the colonial government. And um, of course they, they hated what was going on, but I awoke to this hatred of the Japanese in my teens, you know, after hearing about uh, the Japanese war wartime military sex slaves. And then it was almost like a tap was turned on and then suddenly, because there was a Japanese family renting our basement at the time, and I suddenly just felt so much fear of the, the Japanese father. <laughs> and it was, it was just so bizarre. But I've talked with a lot, like many, many Chinese, many, many Koreans, many, many Dutch over the years. And they've all said the same thing. You know, when, when they learn about the painful history of colonial Japanese colonialism or the wartime atrocities that the Japanese military committed. So that compelled me to document the wartime atrocities uh, in my second book, Silence No More. I've dedicated my life to it because it's it's so intensely personal. It's it's about my family, it's about you know my generational history, my cultural line. Every Korean person I've ever spoken to, unless they grew up, you know, under a rock, you know, <laughs> they they know they they get it. They they get it. And interestingly, I hear the same thing with you know certain people groups who've experienced uh, you know atrocities, like the Jewish people. You know, they they seem to resonate as well. I mean, although what we've gone through is not on the same scale as the Holocaust. But um, there, there is a resonance. It's hard to measure one horrible situation against another. <laughs> I don't think anyone's going to make the case that like the terrible things that happened to me yeah. were worse than the terrible things that happened to you. It's not an argument anybody wants to make. Is that fair? Uh, absolutely. And and I even now I have to qualify what I say with sure. my personal experiences because I write about unspeakable suffering of sex trafficking victims 
I'm, I'm writing about their stories and then I'm writing about my struggles, but my struggles, our struggles are first world. Right. And so I'm kind of like the guide and I hope that other professionals, other people can relate to me as I'm discovering the world behind the curtain and I want to tell the world about what's going on so that we who have the power of choice can inspire and compel others to do something because for a, a cup of Starbucks we can we can support a girl in a in a support shelter right. we can fund healing trauma healing so that's that's been my mission it's it's what my husband Matt and I have committed our lives to and um, yeah that's so I'm, I'm just thrilled to be able to share a little bit with you today you know I always say I was pretty lucky right I grew up in mostly white neighborhoods and <laughs> as a Caucasian man, there wasn't a lot of trauma around being a Jew growing up in the towns where I grew up. I could see racism around me. I grew up in a very liberal minded family where non-liberal ideas were, I won't say they weren't tolerated. They just weren't there. So we grew up in a very open-minded family where, you know, inclusion was just something that happened. It wasn't taught. It was just there, right? So it just seemed, everything just, thing just seemed normal. And I remember when I got to Japan, because I went there for study abroad, and it was the first time I understood what it was like to be a visual minority, where people would literally, but you have to understand what that's like, right? Because you don't know as a white man, people would just <laughs> be like, oh my God, look at that thing over there. You know, for me, it's different than it would be for you. And I want to get to you in a second, right? But because I had been... I wouldn't say entitled, but because I'd been comfortable in that role my whole life. Yeah, fascinating. It, it was it was really interesting, but it didn't bother me. I was like, okay, like <laughs> I get it, but no impact on me. But I'm wondering what the impact is on you, particularly as a young girl growing mm -hmm. up in Vancouver and then finally understanding, oh, I'm different from everybody. Like what is what, what did it feel like then? And I'm more curious about what was the impact later. Yeah, no, that's that's a, a great question. And um, back to what you just shared, uh, just briefly, I'll touch on it. Matt talks about that a lot as well, like the reverse discrimination, you know, being discriminated against because he's uh, not only white, but he's like a white middle-aged male and he represents authority, you know, and to some people who may have uh, wounds or hurts, traumas about British colonialism. Um, I mean, I've, I've seen some Chinese people here flip out on Matt, you know, for, for no reason, because his presence triggers them. So for me, yes, no, thanks, thanks for asking that great question. This is really the launching point of my human rights activism. It's if I didn't have the scarring, painful experience of racial injustice and racial discrimination, I wouldn't have the same compassion for those um, who experience that, you know, migrant workers, um, slavery victims. So when I was little, I grew up in an all white neighborhood. I was often the only Asian girl in the class. And I remember there was, this is one of the milder stories, but there's a Japanese guy, Japanese boy in my, my sixth and seventh grade classes we we barely talked with each other because we both knew right you know instinctively if we started talking everyone was going to point and say you guys should get married you guys should start dating 
so it's so interesting as I look back that, yeah, we were different. We were outsiders. And I had experienced taunting, being called a chink, even by some friends, you know, who would say it as a joke sure. and laugh. But I was so hurt because I think maybe I was hurt because I was thinking, I'm Korean, you fool. <laughs> right. I'm not even the thing you're calling me, which isn't nice to begin with. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, you got it wrong. But um, yeah, and, and just having some friends come over and, you know, look at the kimchi in the fridge and freaking out. And, you know, I've had so many of those humiliating experiences. And um, it, it scars you, you know, especially when you're a child and you're in the formative years and um, you're learning about the world and no one wants to be different. Right. No one wants to be bullied because you, you, you look different and you eat different food at home and you speak a different language at home. That affected me. That affected me in, in terms of, yes, it, it gave me a heart for social justice, but also in the early 20s, I was part of a, a national magazine called Rice Paper, and I wrote a lot, a lot of navel gazing about what it means to be bicultural, Korean and Canadian and having people ask you, where are you really from? You know, right. and often we would say, well, I'm Canadian. And, you know, some innocent and some not so innocent people would say, well, no, but where are you really from? When, at least when you were a young girl, there was not the concept of like a third culture kid. I mean, you weren't third culture. You were probably second culture, right? But like even my daughter, her mother's Japanese. I'm American and we grew up in Tokyo and Thailand. So her cultural affinities are really interesting. Mm -hmm. But she grew up in a completely different world than you did that was very multicultural, right? And was awesome to watch. But when you were growing up, it was obvious that you weren't the same as everybody else that was around you. And this idea of the generated empathy that results from this means that when you get older, you look around and say, okay, what happened to me was not, was very uncomfortable. And then you look at the rest of the world and think, oh my gosh, there's a lot more uncomfortable stuff going on out there. Uh, absolutely. So for me, one of the turning points was uh, the LA riots. So I was turning 16 in 1991 when I saw the, the you know, the, the riots between the African-Americans and the whites and then against the Korean Americans in, in Koreatown of Los Angeles. And it was all about race. And it, it really um, shocked me. And, and I would say, and I, I still don't comprehend why that was such a watermark, but I'd say that that event, it's so emotional for so many Koreans, even Asians, because they, they mark the anniversary every year and the Koreans have the support of the Chinese, the Japanese and other ethnic minorities. The hatred, the racial hatred is something that I'm, I'm still very interested in. I'm very interested in healing and bringing racial conciliation. And I've done grassroots work on that through my film where I, uh, I made a documentary on a Japanese reconciliation team that apologized to um, wartime sex slavery survivors in mainland China. And when they said sorry, their sincerity and the power of love 
when they said sorry, it, it just cut through the heart of the survivors, the Chinese mm. survivors and their families. Yeah. And it brought healing like nothing else. Empathy matters. And, uh, yeah. And, but it can't replace the government's apology. They, they still need an official government apology and a, an end to visits to Yasukuni Shrine. But I just hope that we can bring everybody to the table somehow, despite our differences, and say, look, you know, we're, we're close in proximity, as you said, and we're the three people groups that use chopsticks. So I sometimes refer to it as the chopstick nations. And I hope that we can resolve history, you know, much like Germany, you know, Germany is not perfect, no one's perfect, but they've, they've done a great deal of moving towards reconciliation and bringing closure to the past historical wounds. Yeah, they definitely have. I want to talk about the process of all of your books, and even the documentaries as well. Because I don't think people fully understand, and I know I don't, just the intensity but also the, the, the difficulty of pulling those stories out of people, checking the facts that are associated with them, and telling those stories in a, in a way that's impactful. So what is that like for you, right? Because you kind of know what you're going into, but my guess is that the people to whom you're speaking have not been telling these stories on a regular basis. It's not like, hey, we won the Super Bowl last year. Let me tell you this really fun story that happened to me. It's more like... Yeah. I'm not telling that thing again. And then when a stranger shows up to go through it, and then you do that over and over and over again, can you just run through what that process is like? Yeah, no, that's, I mean, no one's ever asked me this question. So thank you. Um, I'd say it starts with a genuine love and compassion. And um, if I don't have that compassion or that love inside of me, and sometimes I do feel empty, sometimes I do feel tired and jaded and then there's no good interview that yeah. comes out of it and so i i have to start with a genuine interest sincerity in hearing their story i think that's what helped me um get the survivors to open up to me and not everyone can do it and um and i there's nothing special about me but i just had a passion and and love like just sim simple love and that's how i would characterize all my work all my books all my films it's about love because when you're reading a book or when you're watching a film you can feel the spirit of the creator come through and when i don't have that love i i can't create i won't create because it'll it'll be like a clanging symbol yeah so i in the beginning, in the early days, when I was interviewing wartime military sex slave survivors, like the first one I met, Kim Sun Duk, 80 years old, flew into Washington DC all the way from Seoul when she should be hanging out with her grandkids and enjoying her twilight years, but she was forced to get on a plane and testify, even though she was uncomfortable, to a room full of congressmen and, and journalists snapping away and people and strangers. and she flew to DC to, to lobby the US government to support a bill that was calling on the government of Japan to apologize to the survivors of, of Japanese military sex slavery. She was the first. And after hearing her story, I felt like I just spoke with someone really indescribably special. 
And I felt like she was similar to what, how I felt with the hearing the Holocaust survivor. And every time I met with, I mean, I've met some of them through my journalism work and I just, it was just sacred meeting them. I, I just felt like I was in a sacred place. And I felt the same way with, with Kim Sundok and I hadn't felt that with anyone else. And I was working full time as a TV reporter in Canada, covering fires, covering <laughs> inane, like boring stuff. It, it switched on something for me because I, I could have just gone on in a comfortable white picket fence life, covering fires, covering, oh, the break in at this mall or, you know, just really inane things. I mean, apologies to those reporters who are covering they are and it's popular um although tv stations are on the decline but because of the advent of digital but anyways i didn't have a lot of boundaries in the beginning because i just was like full-on you know wanting to soak in their experiences and i had um secondary trauma in the early days very very much so because i'm I'm hearing their experiences of repeated rapes, of um, you know being beaten, being they're showing me their stab scars, you know where the Japanese soldiers stabbed them, and I I didn't realize that I was too young, I was too naive in the early days, but I'm glad I I don't have any regrets because it it really sensitized me to their suffering. I think it was Robert Frost who said no tears in the writer, no tears in the reader. And that's one of my favorite quotes. It's one of my favorite quotes. And I'll, it's, it's something that has guided me in my writing, in my human rights activism. If we can't have tears, then what's the point? What, what's the point? In the research and in the data gathering for your books and also for your documentaries, but did you ever get scared? Do you know what I mean? Was there, cause yeah. there must've been some danger out there when, when you would rock up to some people, they must be like, you know, I don't want to say it, but you know, that feeling you get that look like, okay. <laughs> you know what I mean though? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Good question. I have done a lot of crazy things in the <laughs> early days of my career. A lot of crazy things. I mean, there was one time, I think this was even in, in Canada before I, immigrated back to Asia. That's how I describe it, immigrating back to the motherland. But I, I remember trying to get someone who, you know, she was on the streets and I was trying to get her to open up. I think it was a, a, a radio documentary on HIV. And in order to get her to open up and trust me, I said, oh, can I have a drag of your cigarette? And I took a drag. And then, you know, I told my doctor about it and he's like, get tested for hepatitis. And I'm like, what? <laughs> so it's, it's, it's trial and error. I mean, how else would I know? And I've, I've sat in some brothels in mainland China and in the region, you know, trying to get interviews with the girls. And I remember in Southern China, there was a man, he was like taller than Andre the giant. You remember that? <laughs> <laughs> so this guy, this Chinese bodyguard or whatever he looked like a cyborg and he i was i was kind of yeah i i i was so frightened and he asked me what are you doing there 
my reaction was, and I, I can't believe that I reacted this way because I think this was the best way to respond. I just smiled really big and I said, I'm Korean Canadian and I'm a tourist <laughs> visiting from Beijing. <laughs> <laughs> and then he, I guess he was disarmed because he's probably used to people like peeing their pants. Right. He, he walked away, but there was another time when I was filming in this dark alleyway, trying to capture one of the most hideous, notorious um, red light districts where women were forced to sell their bodies. And this was an area where there's no traffic lights and the stars are so bright because there's no traffic lights. Right. And after I filmed with my iPhone, in a brothel alleyway, which was so stupid of me, the mamasans and the gangsters, triads or whatever they're called, came out and they were threatening us. And they said, give me your phone, show me your phone. You're, you're posting footage on Weibo and that's China's Twitter. And they thought I was exposing them and they would get in trouble. And interestingly that, you know, if they're not doing anything wrong, then why, why would they be threatening us? And my life flashed before my eyes and I, I really thought I wouldn't make it out alive. And so, yeah, I mean, I had post-trauma for several months after that. And, but by some miracle, one of the gangsters said, the police are coming. And then suddenly they, they scattered like cockroaches. I was so numb. And so we, you know, we, we got out of there and I, I just, even now, when I think of that time, I still feel that the clench, the clenchness that I felt back then. Yeah. It's super scary stuff. Let's talk about your most recent book, A Long Road to Justice, Stories from the Frontlines in Asia. What is this? Is this a continuation of the same story? Is it distilling some other things that have happened to you? What is this one about? Sure. Um, it's A Long Road to Justice is more of like my personal reflections on all of the survivors of sex slavery and bride trafficking and other forms of slavery that I've met with a focus on girls and women. And I, I could have written about men um, because I have uh, interviewed and documented South Asian uh, slavery victims. And I've been a champion for South Asian men in saying that there's not enough funding and resources to help men. All the funding and resources are going to girls and to women. And so these men are being ignored when they are the ones who can, you know, get married and form a family. So anyway, I, I could have gone in that direction, but I wanted to write something that I haven't seen out there. And it's, it's kind of like a textbook on what girls and women uh, have gone through in terms of slavery, abuse, exploitation in Asia then and now then being the Japanese wartime military sex slavery system where up to 200,000 and some say 400,000 girls and women were were forced and I saw the the link that what happened to the Japanese wartime sex slaves it still continued on and there were eerie um, similarities you know where um, in, with the comfort woman system, it, there was a lot of racism uh, in terms of the the ticketing, the prices of the women. Uh, Japanese women were the most expensive, and then the darker skin Indonesian Filipina women were the cheapest. 
And um, you see that still in, in the sex trafficking rings and even in signs in brothels, like the, there's a ranking, it's really sick and horrible. Um, so I wanted to tell the world um, about these girls, about these women, and um, just hopefully spark some kind of action in, in people, people like me, you know, people who um, have a profession, have choices, and who would otherwise never come in contact with uh, these survivors of, of sexual exploitation. So did you have to go back out and do more research for this, or did you base this on some of the research that you'd already done? And the reason why I ask is because even from your perspective, there has to be a part of you that says, okay, I'm going to go out and do this again, if you know what I mean, because it's hard. It is, it is. And um, so it, it was uh, basically all the the work and the writing that I've done up until uh, 2019, 2018, okay. uh, because I had been writing articles for different media outlets um, like Reuters and SEMP uh, up until then. And then you're right, over a two year period, I just started to amalgamate and process and include myself because as as a journalist i never write about myself i never speak about myself so it is even now really strange for me to talk about my feelings because i had shut it down for so long yeah it, that was the hardest part of the book believe it or not it wasn't the survivor stories it was more like what do you think what do you feel and i'm like ah, i don't <laughs> i'm not used to thinking and in, in those can you tell me where can people find this book? When was it published? It's really new, right? Yes, it came out uh, three weeks ago and it's available on all book channels. And uh, I'm yeah very honored that it's by Penguin Random House. I grew up reading Penguin books by authors who didn't look like me with the exception of Joy Kagawa, who wrote the endorsement of my book on the cover. Um, Joy is an iconic author and someone I look up to. And she was instrumental in bringing about the Canadian government apology to the Japanese who were interned. And uh, I saw parallels, you know, between um, that, that community in the Japanese, Canadian and Americans receiving an apology. And I hoped that the survivors of Japanese wartime atrocities could also receive a similar kind of recognition and full moral uh, responsibility from the Japanese government and a sincere apology that brings healing, not just a, you know, a, like a trite apology, but an apology that is just so profound, like Willy Brandt, the chancellor of Germany in 1970. Uh, I, I had the photo of Willy Brandt kneeling at the Holocaust Memorial in 1970 in uh, Poland. And that was the image I looked at whenever I, when I was writing the Comfort Woman book. And I, you know, I, I, I kept thinking about that. And so I wanted to just share my journey in A Long Road to Justice and hopefully to inspire other people to make a difference. Even just one action can make a difference if we can pull them all. If 10 million people do 10 million things, then we can change the world. Absolutely. I have one more thing for you. Have you made peace with yourself about your own identity? Oh, that's such a good question. I think you and I can go on and on for 
for hours about this question. <laughs> well, here's what I say. Here's what I say. I'll let you answer, but I want to give you my answer first because it's very yes. short. Yes, please. You can spend your entire life running away from your past or you can just embrace it because you can never get away from it. You just can't. Absolutely. Anyway. Absolutely. Oh, wow. Yeah. No, Michael, that, that is something that I haven't heard anyone address with me in years and years and years. I mean, I, I agree. And I had denied myself. And for most of my life, I would often say this weird joke that, oh, I'm a, I, I'm a white person trapped in a Korean body <laughs> and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a banana, you know, I, yeah, I would, all these things, right. You know, I just felt like I whitewashed myself. Right. I asked my mom not to call me by my Korean name, but in the last several years, I have accepted my Korean identity. And uh, interestingly, I am doing more networking and work in Korea uh, because I think my story about discovering the Japanese military wartime sex slaves will resonate with the next generation there. And I'm trying to connect more with K-pop. Um, and, you know, just that's all part of me embracing and accepting my uh, cultural identity. Yep. And it's been healing. And I would say my book is is like a healing book because I document some of the rock bottom experiences I've had. Um, Matt is an amazing husband. Before him, I was in a terrible marriage, first marriage. And I write about my rock bottom being in total agony uh, over failing because right. I, as a perfectionist, and I grew up like other Asians in a performance-oriented kind of culture. Right. And I've never failed at, at anything before then. And um, it, it just sent me reeling. And I, um, yeah, just it, through healing, through that divorce, that painful divorce, I reached out to the women of, in sex slavery. And, and that's how I processed my own because I, I said to myself, what I'm going through is nothing compared to what these women are going through who've had choices stolen from them, who've had their own lives yeah. stolen from them. So that, that was the impetus, that and the racism experiences. And I'm, I'm very happy to say I, I have accepted my Korean identity. And I hope I can be part of a grassroots movement where we can bring Koreans, Chinese, and Japanese together and say, this is what happened in the past. And let's, let's try to work towards something where the Japanese don't have to say sorry for what the military had done before and during World War II. That is an unbelievably great way to end, Sylvia. I really want to thank you, Sylvia Yu Friedman, for coming on and doing this. And I will point out and put in the show notes your new book, A Long Road to Justice, Stories from the Frontlines of Asia, and your other books as well. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this today. Thank you so much. And I feel like I should have interviewed you because you have uh, a lot of fascinating insights and stories yourself. So it's been an honor. Thank you so much, Michael. It's my pleasure.